Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, to assist me with my 201K, I've been in the double leverage all cash fund, missing this bull market entirely. Gino Martin Adams of Wells Fargo. You have written, and Adam Park was on the other day, another one of your uh, 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 members of the clan uh, with Morgan Stanley. You guys, I like what you said. You got to be in the market. But over the years, Gina, you've written measured, responsible adult notes that well, were frothy. <laughs> yeah. You, you avoided the cheerleading. Now what do you do? I mean, are we at froth level now? I don't think so. And I, I say that because relative to other markets, stocks actually still look reasonably priced. I mean, the trouble is... If you have a turnaround in the bond market, in particular, if you have a turnaround in the corporate credit market, but we've waited for that for trouble. years but and years and years. Exactly. What does your fixed income it. team say? You know, they're they're neutral. Um, they've tried to be cautious on and off because the fundamental outlook for credit is definitely deteriorating. Right. We're late in the economic <clears throat> cycle, the capacity to pay is mm-hmm. less and less so over time. So they're neutral right. and relatively cautious, but they're not calling for a massive acceleration in spreads. They're this not is, calling for a huge default rate uptick. This is just creeping in in August. Yep. And the idea of comparing this to Nifty 50, and I've got to actually go back and look at those years of the Nifty 50, which I associate with Mad Men, like season four. Uh-huh. I can't remember when it exactly was. But we're not at nifty 50 valuations, are we? No, and this is actually, we're not at nifty 50 valuations. (laughs) We're definitely not at tech bubble valuations. We're not at 1999 valuations. No, not even close. And if you look at leadership in the equity market off of the Brexit bottom, especially, and even off of the February bottom, it's been a very broad-based market. This is a market that certainly has been led by defensive sectors and higher yielding sectors. But most stocks in the index are participating. Even when you look at the second quarter earnings season, about 75% of industries recorded better than expected earnings growth. Did they record, so, did they record better than expected cash flow? Because what I'm seeing is a responsible CapEx, which leads to stability in free cash yes. flow. Well, they reported better than expected revenue growth, too. I can't quote you the percent that reported That's fine. better than expected cash flow. It's Wednesday, but Thursday, we expect Exactly. More than three quarters <clears throat> reported better than expected revenue growth, which tells you it's not all manipulated. It's actually, we're starting to see some incremental signs right. of improvement. And so this is the key question. That kind of, Thanks so much, folks, for the response on television an hour ago. Kim Schoenholtz with us with Don Strasheim and Gina Martin-Adams. I thought that conversation was great. Mm-hmm. But the, the money question for our listeners worldwide is can corporate officers, the stocks we own, can they remove themselves from the chronic productivity malaise of America? I've got a faith they can. Am I right? Yeah. You know, I think that a lot of the S&P 500 can. They're the biggest, they're the strongest, they're the most multinational companies. They're used to seeking out sources of growth globally. The trouble is that globally we're in something of a malaise. You know, this is just not just a U.S. phenomenon. This is slow global growth and a lack of confidence, which I think is a really key point. There is a fundamental lack of confidence in investment prospects that somehow has to shift. And no one knows what that trigger is going to be. But at some point, we should see a shift toward 
expectations for growth to improve. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is, quite frankly, a demographic problem. Because if you look at when the stock market peaked and when productivity peaked, it peaked right around the time when U.S. growth in the labor force peaked. And we've seen a slowdown in that since. Mm -hmm. If we can get this new millennial generation right. entering the labor force, we can get some greater prospects for growth. We get more optimism right. in the economy. You can see the, tur the turnaround it, coming. The authority here with Gina Martin Adams of Wells Fargo, she has the advantage of John Sylvia mm -hmm. uh, working down the hall. I mean, other than him talking to you about Red Sox baseball forever, <laughs> when you talk to Dr. Sylvia about Amer American immigration, and about yeah. his great research on America moving around is at a better dynamic now, which leads to a, a little bit better labor force growth and even wage growth, yeah. which you and I know goes right into revenue. Yeah. There's more migration internally. So there's a little bit more migration because the housing market sort of clamp has that. unleashed, right? What so about there's a little bit more migration. Immigration is a tougher topic. I mean, immigration really sort of compressed through geopolitical concern and policy mechanism <clears throat> over the last couple of decades has been tough. You ask any company who tries to get right. those H-1B visas <clears throat> for employing immigrant laborers of high quality, high education immigrant laborers, that there's very right. few to go around. Next idea, and we go back to the classic, I think it was Tenneco years ago, this is like 40 years ago now, of being intelligent and doing buybacks when stock is cheap. Yeah. Do you think buybacks will diminish as a use of cash because of the new valuation or the new almost froth in the no. market? No. Keeps going. And buybacks actually, if you look at history, buybacks accelerate with the market. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Peak when the market peaks. And yeah. what we saw, honestly, this year, buybacks are up 10% year on year. I mean, a year ago, two years ago, everybody like you were saying, yeah, they'll diminish yeah. a little bit, and that didn't happen. No. I think the, one of the biggest risks to the equity market over the longer term is that access to capital slows down or gets squeezed because the buyback phenomenon has been so significant in this particular cycle. Right. If, and companies are clearly using, they're tapping the corporate credit market to fuel the buyback phenomenon in equities. If the corporate credit market locks up, okay. then we're in big trouble. I'm picking, That's on, a big I'm, I'm picking on Disney with earnings yesterday, and I love the idea they're going to pick up a hunk of 33% of MLB streaming uh, as an experiment before they buy the whole uh, thing. Disney debt, 11%, with a cost of capital of 1.1%. Come on, the CFO's got to turn to Mr. Iger and say, let's go, it's the 60s, Ling Temco vote, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, there's no reason not to tap the debt market right now. And companies are doing it. They're doing it in the U.S. They're doing it increasingly So in is Europe. Christine McCarthy at Disney going to say we're going to do a massive share buyback with that debt? Why wouldn't they do that? Maybe massive is the wrong word, but... Well, there's not a lot Disney of reason not to do it. Yeah. There really isn't. And I think that companies, and for the most part, have gone that direction. Do you dollar cost, if, you, if you're in cash, which a lot of people are, how, do you dollar cost average in or you just line up the ducks and buy them in August? You probably keep buying. I mean, the buybacks tend to peak come fall. So we'll see. You have a little summer lull that occurs in the August period, and then they pick back up in the September-October period in advance of earnings. So what does it mean that the, the, there are no volumes there? Is that just the summer lull you're talking about? It's just the summer lull. It doesn't. It's not. Are you the only one working on Wall Street this morning? <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. No, <laughs> no there, there are plenty of us still, um, still trying to get our, our heads around what's going on in the market. So I think that we're all pretty busy this summer. What do you do with Apple? I mean, yeah. and I don't mean Apple, but the 10 stocks like Apple, yeah. where they're just behind. Uh, I think so that the FANG phenomenon that yeah. occurred last year has become a much narrower trade. <clears throat>
right? I mean, there's, there's only a few that are sort of surviving their uptrend. Yeah. Um, you, you've got a lot going on in the tech sector. And what we're seeing in tech right now is semiconductors and the IT software and services groups doing a lot better than some of the traditional hardware groups. Right. Apple falls into that hardware group. Um, we forgot it, that we it seem is hardware. To be, yeah, yeah, it is. It's hardware. And so tech is doing pretty well because the IT software and services like the Googles of the world, right. the Facebooks of the world yeah. are still doing pretty well, but the hardware is struggling. So, you know, I think you still okay. want to pay, maintain positions in tech, but you want to mm-hmm. allocate appropriately at the industry. We're going to continue. Gina Martin Adams with us as well as Fargo. Barry Ritholtz will be along as well. He demanded, he took the surveillance Sikorsky from Connecticut uh, this morning. I, I think I just heard it come down on the top of the building. Barry Ritholtz in for Michael McKee. We had uh, uh, a fun uh, yesterday, smart discussion yesterday. Barry, before you get to Gina Martin Adams at Wells Fargo, let me ask you, Barry Ritholtz, do you link chronic, lousy productivity into equity markets, or can stock owners ignore the economic big picture of productivity? I've been saying for a good couple of years now that the so called productivity problem is more of a measurement of improvements in productivity and not an actual productivity. We simply are not capturing. It's the old saw. Improvements in productivity are everywhere except for the statistics. And to be fair, a lot of people disagree with what you say, but many do. That's part of the debate. Why don't you jump in with Gina Martin-Adams? Sure. Wells Fargo. Sure. So so I'm familiar with your work. Uh, I know your colleague, uh, John Sylvia, for many years. Uh, Where are we in this cycle? It seems that there's still a lot of disbelief. We've just had a whole run of people calling for market crashes and right. sell everything, although you know it's easy to say that when you're a billionaire and aren't saving for retirement. Yeah. Where are we in the cycle? You know, I'd say we're mid to later stages, but nowhere near over. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some really very typical indicators that you use to suggest the cycle is over. One is the inverted yield curve. Everyone wants to say that's meaningless, but reality is... Rates are where they are. Rates represent buying and lending conditions until the short rate and bond rate invert. So, so short how rates do you re- go higher than but long long term bond rates? I'm completely with you up. on that. But how do you reply to the people? Well, how are we going to get an inverted yield curve yeah. when the Fed is manipulating the short manipulating setting the short end of yeah. the yield curve? Uh, they'll never invert. Well, when has my my reply is when has the Fed not set the short end of the yield curve for starters? Well, but not at um, not at zero yeah. is the is the right. Argument. And the, the Fed is committed to incrementally trying to tighten policy, so we're above zero. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the major Barely. you know money centers sure. in the world are facing negative interest rates in the long end. So the one way we could get there is our ten year goes to zero. So in the land of the blind, the one eyed man is king. Is that pretty much it? <laughs> yeah. No. So you've got you've got rates. The other indicator of a cycle is going to be the LEI, mm-hmm. right? The leading economic indicators very consistently invert, go below 0% growth in advance of recession. You usually get a full year lead on that, too. So we're And they've been fairly, there. I mean, they're not robust, but they've been pretty yeah. consistently above zero for five years, it yeah. looks like. flat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the market itself is a pretty good indicator of recession. Uh, the market has had moderate corrections, you know, some even at 10%, which took a lot of people by surprise. But uh, almost almost uh, 19% from if you go peak, <clears throat> to trough, peak to trough, you know, November to February. But the market's recovering and yes. is breaking out positively. So there are, there are just no reasons to expect the economic cycle is coming to an end. So would you agree with the statement that new all-time highs in stock markets are bullish? 
Because, again, yes. another contingency of folks come out and say, oh, my goodness, new market highs. This is terrible. Seems a little counterintuitive. No, I totally to disagree. I mean, I think the technicals tell a lot. Price momentum is very important as an indicator itself, and price momentum is improving. What will break the price momentum? Yeah. What well, will I mean, snap it. Any sort of shock could snap it. Any sort of shock could snap it. Um, we know that. But what- one one thing that I'm worried about that you know I think the consensus has gotten very comfortable in the oil price outlook right now, suggesting oil prices, yep. you know, maybe we, we kind of hover here around $40, but we're not going to push lower. If oil prices push lower back to 25 even push below $25, that's a huge shock to the earnings stream, to the economy, to the market that would certainly derail the upward path of progress. Any sort of financial crisis, you know, I'm quite worried about the fact that global central banks can no longer find sellers of assets to buy. I mean, this is this is some friction that we're going to have to contend with. I'm a little worried about negative interest rates. Any sort of global financial crisis is obviously going to have detrimental impacts on the price as well. So the, the Bank of Japan is now buying uh, used cars, yeah. old lawn furniture, books <laughs> at library sales. Don't buy anything. I mean, so doesn't this really reflect, and uh, again, this is something that's been a subtext for a while, there is a massive shortage of quality sovereign yeah. paper Around the world, and never have before right. has there been a greater need for for countries, both the U.S. and Europe, to spend a little money. That's very true. Actually, it would obviously be very well absorbed. It's kind of shocking, well, quite frankly, that the U.S. Treasury bond is at one and a half percent, considering we're the most stable, developed economy I, in the world. I, I won't go into this at length because we're we're going to run out of time here. But forty plus years ago, I sat in a small room with John Templeton in Toronto. Uh-huh. And in his Tennessee accent, Barry, Sir John said, Tom, there'll be a shortage of bonds. Wow. We're there. Yeah. Now, Gina, do we have other governments starting to buy full faith and credit U.S. paper? It's a good question. Yes, uh, probably. <laughs> I think that for now, what other government central banks are doing is focusing on domestic markets. But yeah, you're seeing. But, but that could be the shift. Yeah, you, you, could, you could see that potentially <clears throat> shift. Okay, this has been fabulous. Gina Martin Adams, thank you so much. My regards to John Sylvia. See if he can pitch middle relief for the Red Sox because they need it. Gina Martin Adams with Wells Fargo. Barry Ritholtz and Tom Keene thrilled you're with us. This is Bloomberg. Disney always surprises, and they did yesterday, and it's something that touches a lot of our listeners, which is the digital miracle that has been streaming of sports. Rich Greenfield has been an astute watcher of Disney. He has been very cautious on the Disney plan forward, and he joins us, uh, thrilled that he joins us uh, this morning. Uh, Rich, um, first of all, do you change your tone on Disney? You've been more than cautious. Do you adapt? No, I mean, look, we've been uh, aggressively telling investors this stock needs to be sold, uh, and if they can short, they should be shorting this stock. The stock is just meaningfully overvalued, and I think you saw the the telltale signs of the problem last night, which is ESPN continues to bleed subscribers. That's the problem. ESPN is losing subs. We all are biased. I'm addicted to Apple TV because there are no commercials. I'm watching MLB. I think I watched Giants last night play somebody. Can't remember. Am I right that Disney wants to buy a trial size of MLB baseball? 
they're buying part of the tech side of what MLB has built. So the, the streaming infrastructure that enables the MLB product that you're using, that back end has started to be used for companies like WWE, The Blaze, Sony's PlayStation View, uh, HBO Now. And so that technology is underlying other companies' um, video streaming businesses. And so Disney's buying us, or ESPN is buying a third of that asset. Long term has a path to control. And I think what it shows you, Tom, is that Disney is basically admitting that it's got a real direct-to-consumer problem. Uh, and it's trying to basically divert investor attention away from the core problem and say, hey, look at us. We've got this new streaming deal. Long term, we have a path to launching some form of streaming product. We won't tell you about the economics. We won't tell you about how we'd ever do it in terms of getting away from the big cable bundle. But focus on this investment. Don't focus on the underlying problems at ESPN. And I think that's really the, the, the tell of earnings last night. And I think it's why the stock is trading down pre-market. Hey, Rich, how much of this is specific to Disney and how much of this is just a longstanding secular problem? I'm a, a big DVR user. Other than the Super Bowl, I can't remember the last time I saw a commercial. Well, look, there is, you know, there is a secular challenge that's facing the entire media sector of all of these basic cable networks have been over-earning. Uh, people have been basically paying for things they don't want. It reminds me of the music industry where you were buying a whole album to get the right. song you wanted. That unbundling problem is exactly what we're seeing now in the multi-channel world where you were paying for lots of channels that you didn't want. I mean, we did a survey that said that 56% of Americans would love to save $8 by giving up ESPN and ESPN2 a month. And so this is not just an ESPN problem. Where it becomes a very acute, specific ESPN challenge, though, is Unlike most cable networks, they have high fixed costs. They have locked in through well into next decade their sports contracts. And so that is very unique to Disney, very unique to ESPN, and it's why of all of the stocks in the group, um, when you layer in valuation as well, right. premium valuation, that's why we've chosen Disney as the one you should short. Richard Greenfield is the BTIG. And there's lots of neutrals in his universe. One of the surprising neutrals is Facebook. Yesterday, Rich, Procter & Gamble went neutral on Facebook. It got a big splash in the media. They've said the ads are less than effective. Is that going is is to be lemmings over the Procter & Gamble cliff? Are they all going to follow? No, I don't. I mean, look, I think Procter & Gamble is basically just saying at the end of the day what Facebook's really trying to do is get reach, uh, that this is less about targeting, that they really want to use the mass reach of Facebook, use the mass reach of uh, things like uh, YouTube and uh, Snapchat, and it's less about targeting individual consumers. So it's not like Tom Keene likes baseball. Let's target people who are over the age of blank that like baseball, that use an Apple TV device. They're literally trying to say, look, yeah, I mean, how do we reach 100 million people? And, you know, in, in some ways there's a Super Bowl in terms of viewership or usage uh, on Facebook every single day. And I think so the pitch is really turning into less about targeting, although they have amazing data, and more about how do we reach people? Because those right. people, as you guys said before, they're not watching ads on TV the way they used to. Agreed. Rich, there's a problem. I'm the oldest person on Facebook. Barry, pick it up. No, you're not. You're definitely <laughs> not the oldest. <laughs> so, so the real question becomes, 
How much of this is about mobile and the advantages there, and how much of this is about people like Tom sitting at his desktop uh, finding uh, old classmates and seeing how they're doing? Is, is Facebook now going to be the default advertising medium uh, for mobile? Well, I think basically it has basically been a monopoly, and I think that's why you know, we've, we've had a buy on Facebook for the last several years, and the, the premise uh, up until very recently was it was the key winner as advertising dollars were shifting uh, from other forms online as well as from other platforms like TV, that you know, this was just the better mousetrap for mobile, and this was really the only way to reach people on mobile. I think the, the challenge they're facing now is they've got a new engagement threat from something like Snapchat, where time spent is certainly under pressure on a relative basis. And the question is, will they have this market all to themselves, and what will that do to growth as you move into next year? But there is absolutely no doubt that their dominance in mobile display advertising has made them a, um, you know, a real behemoth in the space and, and a force to be reckoned with. And look, guys, that's why it's got a $350 billion market cap. So Snapchat aside, they're, they're the obvious competitor. Who else is a possible competitor to Facebook in the mobile space, they their well, success has to Well, I think Google would attract. certainly argue. I think Google and YouTube would certainly argue that, you know, if you're trying to drive mobile ad dollars, um, those would be the two core platforms today. It's Google and Facebook, and everybody else is, you know, picking up the the small leftovers at the table right now. I don't know if YouTube is really given the 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 ending of the unlimited bandwidth. I find myself watching far less video mobile that's really a desktop thing um who else so we have the two behemoths who else might be an up-and-comer the in only thing space? i the, the only thing i would say is most of the time that you're on your mobile phone you're generally more than half the time you're on a wi-fi network and so um consumption of youtube has continued yeah. to explode positively no i agree with the youtube consumption but um you know we've covered on this show a lot are people really watching uh, videos. Rich Greenfield, give us an update on ad blocking. Uh, let me give you the experience, folks. I'm blocked on certain platforms, and I'm not blocked on other platforms. And now I find the ads even more wildly intrusive than before. Rich, you're one of the best guys in the world on this. Is this for real? Look, the the whole media world has a problem, right? Whether it's ad blocking or, you know, one of you said before that you have a DVR at home and you're not usually yeah, watching Barry. commercial. Yep. You know, Barry said that. Ad blocking is not a new thing. I mean, ad blocking also existed. Hey, you were watching the football game and you went to the bathroom. That was essentially blocking the ad or you changed the channel and went surfing to another channel. So ad blocking in some form or ad avoidance has been around for a long time. I think the challenge is, is we now live in a digital world where, whether it's ad blockers, uh, whether it's ad-free content like Netflix, you don't have to be tortured by advertising. When you know, and that's really so. All of the media industry is trying to adjust. I mean, look at the Olympics. Ratings are a disaster. Nobody is enjoying this torturous ad load. And while the ad load is similar to four years ago. I think we've all become that much more accustomed yeah. to not having ads and having more control over our experience. And so I think just the consumer globally is adjusting to this is the way you watch content, and you don't have to watch ads if you don't want to, or you shouldn't have to watch as many ads. And so the question really for all of the companies that probably you, you look at on this show is how are you going to reach consumers in a world where people don't watch TV commercials the way they used to? 
And that's a big fundamental question is what does the future of advertising look like? Well, what does it? You know, it, it probably is shorter, meaning shorter form. Yep. It may mean that the advertising actually has to become content itself where those advertisers are actually creating their own content that you want to consume, you, that you want to share. Do you have any belief within your decades of perspective that the game is fewer, more expensive ads? I hear that from all sorts of revenue producers. Will that theory work? Um, I think it will. The question is, right now, you've still got, what, 18 minutes an hour of torturous commercials on television uh, there has to be a better way. I mean, you turn on the NBC, um, you want to go watch one of the live events on the NBC Sports Experience, and you, ha- you click on the live event, and it literally says, the, after you've watched a couple of ads, it says the event has ended. Like, it's just the whole unskippable, torturous advertising experience. Somehow it has to get better and smarter, and that, that probably means targeted ads, that actually you want to watch, that if you don't like, you can skip. Like, it puts the viewer, it empowers the viewer in a way that certainly does not exist today. So that's very similar to the what, what we see not on television, but how some smarter ads online show up in that you watch the first five seconds, you have to, and if they haven't grabbed your attention, you have the option of skipping. I'm pretty much a default skipper. Is that an effective uh, way of reaching people? Do people who have to watch the first five seconds before they get back to the video, do they actually watch the duration of that ad? I think about 16 or 17 percent do. I mean, Mm -hmm. the reality is when you give people the choice, again, assuming you're showing them a good ad, every time you decide to skip an ad, you learn that a consumer didn't like that ad. And so the idea is... They have to get smarter. If they don't get smarter with the data of what you skip and what you don't skip, shame on them. But I I think that idea of you don't have to watch ads that aren't relevant to you. If you love movie trailers or you love, you know, pick your topic, you don't have to watch the car driving around the mountain commercials anymore. Rich, uh, very quickly here in the minute we've got left with you, Barry Ritholtz and I have been advantaged by the use of Twitter. Is it going to be around in five years? God, I hope so. I mean, I'm a, a huge Twitter user, and as you, I think uh, it's been great from a business prospect to learn and interact with the world. I think the challenge is, is Twitter is still not easy, and I think their big push into sports and live content is because they really want to bait somebody in the traditional media world, especially someone who's in the sports world, meaning a Disney, a Fox, a Time Warner, a CBS. They want to be bought by a larger media company, and w- whether that happens, I don't know, but I clearly think when you look at this strategic push or complete redirection of the company into live content, sports content especially, they're literally trying to provoke a buyer. Fabulous. Rich Greenfield, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that. This is a guy I've really been wanting to speak to. Jared Bernstein is the progressive liberal economist that conservatives lean forward and read and listen to. He has assisted Vice President Biden in his economics, and he is providing assistance to Secretary Clinton, and he is someone that all Republicans will pay attention to as well. Jared, what is the key distinction between Clinton economics and Trump economics? Well, I think it starts with just your basic vision 
of the government's role in the economy. And traditionally, of course, Republicans often, at least on paper, view that role as marginal. So if you kind of dig beneath the surface, a lot of times it's about giving advantages uh, to businesses, uh, sometimes at the expense of working people. So if you look at the tax code, that's the best way to see it. Um, uh, Secretary Clinton uh, raises revenues, uh, typically from the top 1% of households, and uses them for things like boosting the manufacturing mm-hmm. sector, investing in child care, investing in preschool infrastructure, uh, manufacturing. Uh, Donald Trump, on the other hand, in his tax plan, follows a very traditional, which is kind of surprising for him because he's generally so anti-establishment, a very traditional orthodoxy trickle-down plan with large tax cuts uh, on those at the very top of the income scale. From where you sit, from a distance and removed from GOP economic analysis, would President Reagan recognize Trump economics? Uh, He'd recognize it um, quite closely on the tax side. He certainly wouldn't recognize uh, some of the uh, trade rhetoric, although Reagan was not beyond uh, tariffs. In fact, those of us with long memories remember a Reagan tariff on on microprocessors at one point, which, by the way, didn't work out very well. So uh, I think on the kind of uh, trickle-down supply side, sort of the Arthur Laffer-style approach to uh, cutting taxes for the wealthy and hoping that it trickles down. Um, he'd recognize that, unfortunately, in economic terms, that's really been a bust. Hey, Jared, Barry Ritholtz here. Two questions I have for you on a, a Clinton, uh, let's call it a third term or a Hillary Clinton first term. What are we thinking about in terms of a repatriation of overseas corporate capital with perhaps some modest tax attached to it? And what are the odds of a corporate uh, tax reform uh, in the next administration? Very important question, and I think those are related questions. Um, Hillary Clinton really hasn't talked about uh, corporate tax reform yet, though I suspect she will at some point in the relatively near future. And I wouldn't be surprised if what we saw was something uh, in the spirit of what President Obama has proposed, which gets to your question. If you have what's called a tax holiday, which is a sort of one-time repatriation of earnings at a favorable rate of foreign earnings, is the earnings that uh, multinationals are storing abroad in the trillions right now, we understand. So if you say to them, um, here's a one-time uh, gift where you can repatriate your earnings at 5 or 10 percent or something, uh, mm-hmm. we'll do that. But uh, it only incentivizes them to uh, go ahead and defer a lot more earnings in the future. What the president has proposed is deemed repatriation, that is, uh, you've got to repatriate at a, at a, at a tax rate. He, he said something like 14 percent as a transition to a reformed corporate code. We can get into the details of that. Right. That's a very important difference. Jared, um, I associate with Secretary Clinton a phrase from years ago, but I think before she was secretary, even senator, which is fair trade. Fair is an mm. emotional word for both sides of the uh, political aisle. How does Jared Bernstein describe fair trade? So I describe that as uh, trade agreements and trade negotiations that have workers at their core instead of solely corporate interests. I don't describe it as necessarily less globalization or less trade. I'm one of these people who actually thinks that globalization is a positive, not just for us and our cheaper consumer goods, but for other countries who have to have an opportunity to grow their economies and uh, emerge by selling to wealthier countries like ours. However, 
The problem is that the rules of the road have been written much too much in the spirit of just kind of appeasing corporate interests, many of which end up being protectionist by uh, extending patents or uh, you know, biologic uh, drug patents mm-hmm. and things like that. So, so uh, I think it needs to be reshaped, but I don't believe you can put that toothpaste back in the tube. Right. That's why I don't, I don't really like the Trump approach, which sounds to me like it's a kind of nostalgia for an area well, an era when we didn't engage in as much global right. trade as we do now. Uh, Jared, one final question quickly here. I spoke with uh, Professor Stiglitz a few days ago, clearly in support of Clinton, um, Clinton economics. A lot of the middle is scared of liberals. They're scared of Joe Stiglitz. I'm not sure they're scared of Jared Bernstein. We know they're scared <laughs> of Barry Riddles. But, but a, a lot of people worry about those liberals. How do you respond to that? Where can the, the tone come from Secretary Clinton to assure the people in the middle? I think probably if you, you know, it's funny, the historical record, and I, I don't quite understand why this is the case myself, and I think probably it has something to do with luck, but the historical record suggests that Democrats uh, have historically Democratic presidents have historically posted better numbers, whether it's productivity, GDP, uh, even median family income, jobs, uh, even the stock market, by the way. And I I think that may have something to do with recognizing a proper balance between government uh, and its role in the economy and trying to allow the private sector to do its thing at the same time. So I think getting that balance is right. And I think the Republican Party has really just gone so far to the right in terms of just essentially cutting taxes, gutting government, and not recognizing that an $18 trillion uh, $18 trillion economy, you know, the government has to play a role. Now, balancing yeah. the role is critical. You can't overdo it. But uh, ignoring it okay. is, is, is a huge mistake. Jared Bernstein, thank you so much this morning. My pleasure. Uh, This is a great honor. Richard Haas turned to me a few days ago, the Council on Foreign Relations, and said, really, you must speak to Sheila Smith. She graced Jonathan Sobel's wonderful article in the New York Times a few days ago on the Emperor of Japan. And we are honored to bring you this morning Sheila Smith of the Council on Foreign Relations out of Columbia on the Emperor and Japan. Dr. Smith, good morning. Uh, Good morning. um, You go back to Elizabeth Gray Vining. I believe 1952, an extraordinary book in a window of Japan in transition after World War II. The young boy in that book, now 82, where is Japan now? Will, will things forever change, or is that overplayed by the West? Well, you know, the, the, the current emperor of Japan is referred to uh, as the Heisei Emperor. And as you know, every Japanese emperor has his own era. And this emperor is deeply tied to this particular moment in Japanese history. Heisei in Japanese means to realize peace. Uh, He is the second post-war emperor, the first, of course, being his father, who navigated those very difficult moments through defeat and occupation. So today's emperor is a a young man, right, came into that post-war period, as you said, um, and has really grown up in many ways with the post-war Japanese society that he now begins to speak to uh, about his retirement. Where will this 
institution be? And that's disrespectful to the Japanese people. But where do you perceive this institution will be five and ten years from now with the crown prince? No, I think that's a great question. I think one of the things that struck me when I listened to the emperor speak uh, on the video on Monday was that he was talking about his own personal uh, life, his aging, and, and identified yeah. himself with the society as well. But what he was also talking about and alluding to was his family. And in this imperial family, his children, um, the crown prince, who mm-hmm. will succeed him, of course, they, they grew up very, very differently. They're very cosmopolitan. They were educated abroad. Uh, they have children of their own. Um, so he's really making an appeal not only for himself, uh, but for right. this new family of his that has to face a fairly restricted and quite um, politically contentious uh, role in Japanese society. If you're just joining us, Sheila Smith, the Council on Foreign Relations, on um, the wrong, Barry, Barry Ritholtz, the wrong word, abdication, I've been told by uh, Robert Feldman of Morgan Stanley and others, is, is decidedly the wrong word to use in this case. Mm. Yeah, you know, it conjures up, abdication conjures up, you know, um, uh, the the British example, right? Yeah. <laughs> and all of that. It, it conjures up Helen Mirren, or is it Dame right. Judy, Gen- Judy Dents? I can't remember. Yeah, Sorry, exactly. jumping. So, yeah, my, so- my question as a uh, ugly American is, we don't really understand this concept of an emperor and what it means for what appears to be uh, a democratic country. Could you explain for the rest of our listeners who may not be Um, Japanophiles may not understand the significance of the emperor to the Japanese people? Sure. I think structurally the easiest um, model to think about would be the British and the British monarchy, right? Um, The emperor, they're not completely the same, but it is very similar in that the Japanese have a parliamentary democracy. Uh, They elect their prime minister. Um, The majority party in parliament then gets to choose the the leader that that they want to put forward for the country's prime minister. That is exactly the way Japan is now run. That new system of government was established in the 1947 constitution, but that Constitution also sets out this role of symbol of the state um, for the Japanese emperor. Uh, he's a symbol of the state, but also um, of the unity of the people. And I think that's an important piece of the puzzle for Japanese as they look to the specific um, to the emperor we're now discussing. He is somebody who has come to the fore in many ways um, in 2011 when Japan suffered those terrible disasters. He was the one that got on the airwaves two or three days later to say to the Japanese people, we have suffered the worst disaster since World War II, but we must come together as a nation to respond. So he, it was then that I sensed among many of my Japanese friends and colleagues, whatever they thought about the politics of the imperial institution, that he was really the person that represented them and could pull them together as Japanese. Well, to go to Ruth Benedict in 1946, which is a stunning book, uh, it's, it's, it's timeless, folks, on the immediacy, as John Dower has written about, about Tokyo in MacArthur's 46, 47, 48. What is the proper station of the people to their emperor? To Barry's good question about describe it, Ruth Benedict's phrase, taking one's proper station, is the emotion of the moment, isn't it? 
Well, it is, but I think remember that Ruth Benedict was writing at a very different time. Yeah. I would say today you probably have much more diversity in terms of how Japanese view the emperor and the imperial institution. I think younger Japanese um, may have not quite as, 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 as weighty a sense uh, of the emperor as their leader, or they may not identify with him in the way that their grandparents' generation did. So, so remember, there's been a tremendous amount of social change in Japan. That being said, um, the imperial institution itself continues to have a fairly central place in the way that the Japanese think uh, about mm-hmm. the people who occupy that house, right? Um, they're not quite like the British monarchy, where there's lots of tabloid journalism, although there is some. Right, yeah. um, but it's much more restricted and much more constrained. There is lots of if you ride the subways and read the the tabloids, you'll see lots of reported right. beliefs of the household agency and things like that. But they're not so much out in the public uh, right. as the British or European uh, monarch monarchies are. One final question before we go: We've got some news we've got to cover here. Unfortunately, does does the emperor do walkabouts, or will you know, I'm thinking of the Queen of England? Or will the crown prince do that? Do you just assume a more accessible um, leader of the Japanese people? I think he has been extraordinarily accessible compared to his father. I suspect that the crown prince, when he occupies that role, will be even more accessible yeah. than his father. I think it's just going to be, uh, you know, there, there is a certain question of safety, of course, always. Sure. But the, the, the emperor and empress... The current emperor and empress were in Tohoku, right, dealing yeah. with the people in shelters. They have been uh, discussing. They meet with children. They go out and about a lot. Um, but again, escorted right. appropriately. I think the younger generation will want to break out of that. Again, implicit in his statement on Monday was that his family needs to grow and his family needs right. to develop. So I suspect generation, the generation to come will also start to push a, a little bit at the limits and the restrictions. Right imposed on their role as well as on their lives. Sheila, thank you so much. Sheila Smith with the Council on Foreign Relations. I can't say enough about her work that you can see at CFR.org on Japan. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.